are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome, listeners. Whether you've been joining for a while or this is your first time, welcome to this podcast series over Luke 23. We're doing the entire book of Luke and we're almost done with it. Um, I have been thinking a lot about what God wants me to do over these, uh, you know, once we finish the book of Luke. And I have um, thought a lot about it, prayed a lot about it. And while it's easy for me to just pick a book and go through that, and that's edifying, it's, it's challenging on many levels, it's encouraging for me. One of the things that I feel like God is kind of pressing on me that I'm going to pray through a little bit more, uh, but I don't want to reject just because it would be difficult, um, uncomfortable, or anything like that for me, as it would be. Um, But to go through some commonly taught heresies in the church today, um, topic by topic, that um, is difficult for me just because I... I know there's a lot of people out there who are well-meaning, and I don't want people to get the wrong idea that I'm attacking them. But they are heresies, and they do need to be addressed. And I'm just not sure this is the platform for it, but again, it's something that God has been kind of pressing, and I just want to make sure that's his pressing and not my own, just because of frustration built up because of some of it that I see going on. So... That uh, might or might not be what we're going to do when we finish the book of Luke, but we do only have two chapters, and while it might have to be broken up into two parts on some of them, we are going to be finishing this soon. So I'm excited about what God's going to do after this one. It's been a super encouraging study of going through Luke. We've hit tons of topics, um, and hopefully it's been edifying to you. But we're going to get right into chapter 23 because we do have a longer one again, and we're going to see how... We can um, get through this one today if it's going to be two parts or one thing that we just get in one big lump sum. What I will encourage you to do is one thing that I talked about two or three weeks ago is that when we have a tendency when we talk about the cross and we talk about elements of it, we have a tendency to minimize it through repetition. We've heard about it a lot. We talk about the cross a lot. We sing about the cross. We hear sermons on the cross. We read about the cross. We have conversations about the cross. And it has a tendency to lose some of its power and its meaning and its beauty because we talk about it so much. As we go through this one, I don't want to miss it. Uh, I am praying for you, as I've also been praying for myself, that we would feel the weight of it. So with that said, we're going to get right into verse 1 of chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate and began to accuse him saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. 
And Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and from Galilee, even to this place. What, what is their tactic and what they're doing? One, understanding this, that the law forbid them from crucifying anyone. The law said that the furthest they could go was to stone a person to death. They could not put a person up on a cross, humiliate them, shame them, strip them of their clothes, and suspend them 12 to 15 feet up in the air as a, as a testimony, essentially, of what happens when you come against them. They didn't have that authority, but Pilate did. They wanted to shame him. They wanted to mock him. They wanted to make him an example of what happens when you question their authority. But they couldn't do that in and of themselves in the way that they wanted to. And so they were going to Pilate. And they, what did they do? They tried to use not just that he was coming against the law or misleading their nation, so to speak, as what they put it. But also that he was forbidding them to give tribute to Caesar. What does that have anything to do with it? Was trying to appeal to Pilate's affections. Pilate knew that if somebody else was coming in bringing competition or challenging Caesar as king. That his kingdom could be in turmoil and he could lose his position. And so he was more willing to grant their request because now he brought Caesar into the matter. The, the Jews did not like Caesar. The Jews did not want to be under Caesar. Their whole deal was they wanted the Messiah to come in and deliver them from Rome. However, for their own personal interest, they were willing to use Caesar as a means to an end. So they do. They say, he forbids us from giving tribute to Caesar, which is actually not true because Jesus said from his own mouth, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He says, I'm not going to say you need to give your allegiance to him, but you do need to honor him. As even foreshadowed, or not foreshadowed, but upheld in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, when he says, honor the emperor. That's Peter's charge to the, to the church. Honor the emperor. Yeah, I know he does some evil things. I know he does some wicked things. But God put him there in position of authority. Honor him as such. And so Pilate asks Jesus the question, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, that's what you're saying. You said so. You said I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate says, look, I won't have anything to do with this. Now, you're not going to find it in this account, but in other gospel accounts, you're going to find that Pilate's wife had a dream about Jesus, a very tormenting dream that really messed her up. And she went to Pilate and she said, look, I have nothing to do with this guy. Like this, this is bad news. If you're going to have anything to do with this, if you're going to give them him over to the request of the people, this is bad news. I'm telling you, don't have anything to do with him. You need to release him, let him go. So Pilate is already on edge about who Jesus is. And he says, look, I find no guilt in this guy. And they were urgent, saying, but he stirs up the people. He's going to cause chaos. He's going to cause divisions. And you know what happens whenever that takes place. Caesar's going to come in and he's going to bring order through force. And you are going to pro probably, at the very least, have your authority stripped and be demoted. Or he's going to kill you. Because if there's one thing that Caesar didn't tolerate in his kingdoms was insurrection, especially religious ones. So Pilate knew. And they were trying to play to his affections and his fears of saying, look, he's stirring up the people. We're going to have a riot on our hands. We're going to have insubordination on our hands. And then that means that's going to become your problem. You better deal with them now. This is kind of how the stage is being set. So it goes on, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. 
And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. He says, look, I'm not going to have this guy be my problem. I'm going to send him to Herod. Herod can deal with him and deal with the consequences then. I'm going to wash my hands from this. This is his first attempt at washing his hands of Jesus. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Man, how true is that for so many people today? They desire to see Jesus and they desire even to have Jesus because of what he can do for them. That's a fleshly, sinful desire to want to have Jesus. If the only reason that you got quote-unquote saved was so you didn't have to go to hell, you missed the whole thing of what the salvation is about. Here is a true submission to the gospel and an entrance into salvation. Is that when it is not about what he can do for you, but when your viewpoint shifts to what can I do for him. Herod was wanting to see Jesus. He was wanting Jesus in his company simply because he wanted to see what Jesus could do for him. But when that became evident that it wasn't about Herod, Herod wasn't the main actor, he wasn't the center stage of it. Well, we see, we're about to see, <clears throat> about to see how he treated Jesus. And there's many people out there today that think that Jesus died for them simply so they didn't have to go to hell. But they can still live their life how they want to. And they can still make their life about, about themselves. That's not true salvation. True salvation is when you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that He is Lord. That means that it's not about you. It's about Him. It's not about what He can do for you. It's about what you can do for Him. That is true salvation. He goes on in this, in verse 9, So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Because now, because he hasn't done anything for him, he didn't give him an answer, he didn't give him a sign, he didn't do any miracle in his works to entertain him. Now, Herod's a little angry. And so he began to mock him. He began to treat him with contempt and arraign him in splendid clothing. He sent him back to Pilate. Now this clothing that was given to him was a, a source of mockery. It was a seamless tunic that was, he was dressed in. It was a very expensive garment actually that Herod gave to him as a sense of mocking him. And this comes into play later whenever they were casting lots for his clothing. This is what it was. This was part of his clothing they were casting lots for. I've heard one, people, one person say, at least, that Jesus wore a seamless tunic, which means that he was wealthy and rich. Well, let me just tell you, Jesus didn't, didn't walk around in seamless tunics. That was given to him by Herod as a source of mockery. Let's understand the context before we make some um, outrageous um, claims about Jesus. Jesus did not live as a wealthy man. And neither did the apostles who followed in his image. He goes on, he says, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Ooh, a common enemy can unite even the, the most hostile enemies. You see, when two enemies find a common enemy, they can become friends. I have had this happen to myself, actually. 
and stances that I've had to take for the gospel and things that I have um, stood for in truth, as I have done in many of these podcasts even, but as a shepherd in person, you take stance for truth, all of a sudden you can have people who they used to love you, but then all of a sudden you step on their toes a little bit too much. You tell them things they don't want to hear. And all of a sudden, you can have two people who might not like each other become friends because you have become their common enemy. I've had it happen to me several times. People who have abandoned the fellowship, who have lost the fellowship, who actually didn't like somebody who had previously left the fellowship because of truth, all of a sudden they become friends in hating me. And it seemed to be the same thing, that after this time, Herod and Pilate found a common enemy and they became friends. In verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. He says, nothing deserving the cross has been done by this guy. I'll punish him, I'll release him, but nothing deserving death has been done by this guy. I can't in a good conscience crucify this guy. I know what goes into that. I know the pain that's there. And I'm not just going to do it to anybody. So I'll punish him to appease you. And then I'll release him to your hands to do what you want with him. Under your law to judge him how you want to. But that wasn't good enough for the people. And see, Pilate was trying to play both sides. As oftentimes politicians do. Pilate was trying to play both sides of saying, look, uh, I'm listening to my wife. I'm listening to some of these things. I don't see this man worthy of death, but on the same hands, I got to give the people what they want. So let me try to find a middle road between the two. Instead of taking the narrow road or the broad road, let me try to create this middle road in which I can appease the people, but not have to crucify the Son of God. And in the same way, we have people who try to do that today too. People who want to live a Christ-like life, but they're also trying to straddle the fence of being people pleasers. And let me just tell you, you can't do that. It is impossible to follow him because the word follow means to ape or to imitate. You cannot imitate the life of Christ when you're seeking to please man. In fact, Galatians, Paul writes to us a very specific verse that relates to this. He says this in verse 10 of chapter 1. For, of Galatians, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I still trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He says, if I'm trying to please man, I can't be a servant to Christ. It's impossible. You cannot seek to please man and please Christ when they're at odds with one another. What fellowship does light have with darkness? You cannot play both sides. You either follow Christ or you don't. There is no in-between. In fact, in Revelation 3, in a message to the church, Jesus says, either be hot or cold. There is no middle ground because if you try to dwell there, I'll spit you out. I'll vomit you out of my mouth. I do not tolerate divided devotion. So he goes on and he says, In verse 18, But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, 
Now, you might find a footnote in your translation, depending on which one you read, that it skips from 16 to 18. Well, in the footnote it says here, um, some manuscripts add verse 17. Now, he was obliged to release one man to them at the festival. This is where Barabbas comes in, and why they even said to us, release to us Barabbas. It was customary for Pilate to release one man on this day. One man that the people wanted. And here you have Barabbas, who was a bad dude. He was a murderer. He was an insurrectionist. He was a guy who stirred up trouble everywhere he went. He was a bad dude. And so he brings the worst of the worst out there next to Jesus. And he says, look, it's customary for me to release one prisoner to you guys. Bring, to send him back to the people. Now here's Jesus, who's done nothing wrong. He's a good guy. He upholds um, giving tribute to Caesar. He, he upholds a lot of stuff out there. And I know you guys don't like him, but he is a good dude. And here's Barabbas, a murderer, an insurrectionist. He's a bad dude. Surely you're going to say you want Jesus released to you, not Barabbas. You want him to stay in prison because you're afraid of him. But they had been filled with such anger. And jealousy and hatred towards Jesus. As it talked about when it says, I'll send my son, right? The parable about the vineyard. I'll send my son. After sending all these other ones, they beat them and they, they sent them away. I'll send my son. They'll honor him. And it says, this is the heir. Come on, let's kill this guy and take what was his. They hated Jesus. So much so that a murderer... An insurrectionist, a thief, would be given back to the people to live among them again. So that Jesus could be crucified. That's how much they hated Jesus. But I want you to see in the layers underneath that, that are peeled back, that that is the gospel. The one who deserved to be imprisoned and condemned and crucified. Jesus took their place. He took my place. He took your place. Even though he didn't do anything wrong. He took your place. As 1 Peter chapter 2, 21, I believe says, maybe it's 22, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree. He took what you and I deserved as sinners, as murderers, as insurrectionists, as thieves. You name it, we did it. In some way, shape, or form. And he took our place on the judgment seat. That's the gospel. And it goes into why in chapter 22 I talked about the notion of self-defense is irreconcilable with the gospel. May we not be Christians who receive the gospel from God, but are unwilling to live it to others. So he goes on in verse 19, a man who had been thrown into prison, talking about Barabbas, for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him, and a third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death, I will therefore punish and release him, I have said it. I am Pilate, I am over you, I have said it. I will punish him and release him because I have the authority to crucify him or to release him. So I have chosen, I'm going to punish him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. 
and their voices prevailed. And how often do we desire to honor the Lord, but public opinion sways our devotion? Maybe it's not even people-pleasing. Maybe it's just the majority. Man, I can tell you that when God began to unveil certain truths to me through His Word and studying out His Word, there was times where public opinion, I was way in the minority. You know, living here in in the Bible Belt, as it's called, in in territory that's predominantly Baptist in doctrine. As God began to unveil things to me that were not Baptist in doctrine, that were actually opposed to many of the things that Baptists would proclaim, I was in the minority. And yet I still had to take a stand no matter what came. Public opinion tried to sway me in many ways, but the grace of God prevailed, not the voices of the people. And I thank Him for that, but I will say, it has made life very difficult and at times very lonely. What about you? Are there times in your life in which public opinion sways you into being like Pilate who will still di- who would then choose to dishonor the Lord, dishonor truth, not stand up for what needs to be said simply because you're afraid of the public opinion of man? You're trying to play both sides. You're trying to please man, but you're trying to please God and you're not sure how that's going to work out. So you're trying to do both. Let me just tell you, you're not a servant of Christ if you're trying to please man. It's very simple. So what did Pilate do? He released Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for insurrection murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as other accounts would say, he washed his hands. He says, look, I have no guilt towards this man. Let me just tell you, washing your hands physically is not going to take you off the hook when you dishonor Christ, when you stand before God. You can think that you can wash your hands and say, I'm declaring to you guys, it isn't me. Pilate had the ability to release him. And he chose not to. Don't think that you can just simply say, well, you know what? I know what's going on. I'm just not going to say anything. And that's going to be their thing. You know, maybe you know about an affair that's going on. And you're like, I just, I don't really want to be that tattletale who goes and tells on people and says, you know, says this or whatever. Let me just tell you, blood will be on your hands. That sin, they're going to give an account for But blood will be on your hands because Ezekiel 33 says that we as the church should be watchmen. And if we see impending judgment coming, if we see destruction coming, if we see people going outside the city walls and doing things on their own accord and they're not staying inside that city where there's protection, they're going outside of it and they're dishonoring God by doing things that they ought not to do. If we don't say anything, blood is on our hands. They will be held accountable to their sin. But blood will be on your hands. You cannot seek to please God and please man when they're opposed to each other. So Pilate gives Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, notice it wasn't Pilate and the Romans who led him over. Pilate gave them permission to do with him as they wanted to, even up to crucifixion. So as they, the leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, as they led him away with the supervision of Rome, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. 
and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And I love this example because halfway through this journey, this mile and a half walk of carrying this beam, bloodied, beaten, all this stuff, God gives us this beautiful picture of a man who's now brought in to carry the cross the rest of the way is this beautiful beautiful example of the gospel in which Jesus has done his part. He's done what was needed. He's fulfilled so much. But here's this last stretch that he says, now I want you to carry that cross with Jesus right there with you, helping you along the way. And as you carry that cross, the blood of my son that was on that cross is on you. And it's a beautiful picture of what Luke 9, 23 through 24 says. If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow after me. Matthew 10, 22, you have need of endurance. I'm sorry, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews 10, 36, you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you'll receive what is promised. The will of God is simply that we carry the cross until the end. And we pick up that cross and Jesus walks with us the entire rest of the way until it's culminated in the end. So they bring in this man, Simon of Cyrene, to do this. And I believe it's all at the um, ordination of God to say that I am bringing this in as an example to my church moving forward. That they would say, you know what? It isn't that Jesus just carried the cross for you. You have a part to play in this too. It isn't that Jesus carried the cross for you. It's that you carry the cross with him until the end. In 27, it says, And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So here's these women who are weeping. They're crying, they're weeping, they're pouring out this emotional display before him, weeping that he's doing this. And he says, don't, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Well, that's an interesting thing to say. Most people would be like, hey, it's going to be okay, I'll be okay. But Jesus says, uh, I, you don't need to be looking at me as your source of why you're weeping. You need to be looking at yourselves and at your children. Because I know what's coming. He says this, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, meaning the children, not you, but in the coming generations, they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. What does Jesus mean by that? I think he means exactly what he says. Times of selfishness are coming. People will forget that children are a blessing from the Lord. And they'll begin to go off in their own methods into these, these vain pursuits and these selfish things and ideologies in which they'll be saying, hey, you know what? It's actually more blessed to not have kids. It's more blessed to maybe only have one or two kids. Because you know what? I just can't take any more blessings from God. My body can't take it. Or my wife had a hard time in that one. So we're just going to go ahead and have some procedures done to make it so that she can't have any more because I'm just afraid for her life. Let me just tell you that's selfish and vain. And that's not entrusting yourself to God. And that's part of the equation of what he says here. 
You can even look in Deuteronomy 23.1 in which I don't believe in the, the letter of the law. 2 Corinthians 3 says that that's been done away with because of the glory that surpasses it. But I do believe in the heart of the law. In Deuteronomy 23, chapter, uh, chapter 23, verse 1, he says that no one with, whose male organ is cut off or who doesn't have testicles can enter the assembly of the Lord. What's he talking about there? Because I believe that there are people who they might only have one testicle or maybe their male organ is cut off. I believe that they can have access into coming into Christ. But what is he talking about there? He says it's the people who have procedures done. And you might think it's a stretch, but I'm going to challenge you on this one because I'm going to bring up some scriptures that I think that you're not going to be able to challenge. But the premise of Deuteronomy 23.1 is the one who takes it into their own hands so that they don't have to have any more kids. The ones who decide, they didn't have vasectomies back then. They didn't have tying of the tubes. They didn't have birth control back then. The only thing that they had to try to control populace was to cut off a male organ or the testicles. That was the only thing that they had to try to regulate how many children they were going to have. Oh, I'm one and done. I got my boy and my girl. We're through. And he says, you should weep for yourselves. Romans 12 says to present your body as a living sacrifice to God. That means that you don't take it into your own account as to how many children you want to have. God takes it to be a very serious thing whenever he says, Oh, you're going to try to take it upon yourself to have medical procedures or you're going to take it upon yourself to choose, Hey, here's what we're going to do to make sure that we don't have any more kids. He says, Then you will not be able to come into right fellowship with me. You might think that that's severe. I don't. You might think it's severe... That Ananias and Sapphira were struck down dead because they were only partly devoted to God and they lied to the Holy Spirit. I don't. You might think it's severe in 1 Corinthians 5 to cast somebody out to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. I don't. Just as I don't think that it's severe to say that God loves children. For their angels always see their Father who is in heaven as the word says. And here you are, as he calls them a blessing, and you're trying to put a hand in his face and saying, no more blessings of God. In fact, I think it's more blessed the wombs that don't bear and the breasts that don't nurse. Psalm 127 says, children are a blessing from the Lord. In fact, let me just turn to it because I think that there's some very important things that you need to understand in this Psalm 127 passage that goes unnoticed today because this is a passage about children. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. What does he mean by that? Because the context of this entire thing is five verses and it's all about children. And this word for build is the, is the Greek word bana. And it means to build and establish a family or to obtain children. And the house is synonymous with the family. It is not an actual house. He says, unless the Lord has the final say, unless the Lord is allowed access to build the family in terms of how many children you have, those who want to take that authority for themselves, everything you do is in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with him. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The whole concept that he's stating here is God must have the authority to establish how many children you're going to have without you putting a hand in his face. Because if you want to decide how your family is going to be raised and how many kids you're going to have, he says, I don't care if you wake up early or go to bed late. You will eat the bread of anxious toil. You will never have my peace in your life. You might have peace in saying, oh, I don't have to deal with eight kids. Praise God, I only have two kids to deal with. You might have an artificial peace, a superficial one, but it will not be God's peace. Children are a blessing. So for you to try to take it into your own hands to say otherwise and to say, you know what, eh, we only want two blessings, that's it, and we're done, we can't handle anymore. Then this next part is for you as well. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Destruction is going to come and shame will come upon those who ignore the word of God. Does that sound familiar? Because I can tell you back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, there was these two people who were created to heed the word of God and they chose to ignore the word of God and give in to the temptation of Satan when they saw that something else seemed a little bit more appetizing. And after they gave in to that sin, you know what they did? They went to go get some fig leaves to cover them because of their shame. One day you're going to stand before God and He's going to say, why did you choose to not let me have access to your womb? To not present your body as a living sacrifice, even though it's written right there in the Word, present your body as a living sacrifice. Why did you choose not to do that? And you will begin with shame to say, I need something to cover me. I want something to cover that. And you won't find it. Because you'll be naked and be seen exposed. As Revelation 16 says. You will give an account for everything you do in the body, whether good or evil. That means that if you choose to not present your body as a living sacrifice to God, you will give an account. You will stand before Him. So you might think that it's extreme. I think it's extreme to ignore the Word of God. And choose for yourself what seems right to you. Doesn't Romans 12 even go on to say, never be wise in your own sight? That we should flee youthful passions of making this life about what we want? And instead we should pursue what God wants. And this difference between humanitarianism and fundamentalism in the gospel. Humanitarianism talks about that God uh, wants you to be happy. Fundamentalism is God deserves happiness, not you. So it goes on in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with them. And when they came to the place that is called the skull or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals. One on his right, one on his left. And so you have these two criminals that other gospel accounts say that both of them were mocking him. Both of these criminals were up on this cross mocking Jesus. 
They were both crucified with him. And here's Jesus' words in verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Whether that's the Roman soldiers who are beating him, whether that's the Jews who are putting him on this cross, whether that was these two criminals that was beside him, mocking him. Jesus has a blanket statement over all of them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How quick are we to say that exclamation to the people who are doing things to us, mocking us, hurting us, slandering us, beating us, torturing us? How often do we respond with that type of mentality? And yet, it is written and it is our example, as Hebrews 12, 1-2 says. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every sin and weight which clings so closely and run this race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the one who set the bar of the faith at the highest level. And he says, now I want you to run to attain it. This was our example. And yet somehow or another we've justified contrary examples to the life of Christ and to the gospel, in which we would somehow justify taking another person's life because they hurt us. When Jesus gave his life to the very ones who hurt him and for them. Something to think about. And he goes on, and they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers, meaning the Jews, the Pharisaical rulers, the scribes, the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They mocked him up on that cross as he was suspended up there. They were mocking him, saying, If you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. And what's interesting is you go back into Luke chapter 4 and Matthew 4, and I talked about this in a previous podcast when we went over Luke chapter 4, and I foreshadowed it here in Luke chapter 23. God prepared Jesus in the beginning, or was preparing him, when Satan put him up on the pinnacle of the temple, and he says, If you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. Prove to me that you're the Son of God. And Jesus says, Don't put God to the test. And here we see the same thing. He's up on this cross and they scoffed at him. And he says, if you're the son of God, come down from that cross. God was preparing Jesus from the beginning for what he was going to suffer in the end. And he's doing the same thing for you and I. The temptations in the wilderness prepared him for the cross. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There is also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. In other gospel accounts, you find that Pilate insisted on that being up there. Why he didn't insist on not putting Jesus on the cross, well, that, that's um, yet to be determined as to what's really going on with that one, other than the fact that it was to fulfill scripture. Jesus had to go there, so God moved on Pilate's heart to not do it. But he insisted that this sign was put on there, the king of the Jews. And the Jews wanted no part in that sign. 39, one of the criminals, criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the others rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Something changed in this man's perspective, according to Scripture. That caused him to look at Jesus no longer with contempt, no longer in a sense of mockery, but with a sense of respect and understanding of who he was. Something changed. 
And it was the example. Nowhere in all this did it appear that Jesus said anything. It was his example that changed this guy's mind. And for you and I, while saying things often are going to be part of our Christian walk, as I've addressed earlier, it's our example that causes people to see Christ. And the example that Jesus was, was you know, emitting from his presence in this moment, and in the moments prior to that this criminal would have seen, caused this man to no longer re- rebuke him, mock him, treat him with contempt, but now to honor him. And he said to Jesus in verse 42, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Giving credence to that he believed he was the Son of God, he was the Christ. And he said to him, Jesus responding to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now punctuation is a tricky thing in scripture. It's added by man. There was no punctuation in the Greek. And so it was added by man to try to give our best understanding of what's going on in the English language. And here I think that the comma being placed after you I think is improper because understanding that Jesus didn't even go to paradise that day. 1 Peter chapter 4 tells us, 3 and 4 tells us that Jesus actually went down into Hades. For three days he was in Hades and he was declaring a message of victory to them. He wasn't declaring them a message of repentance as if they could repent and come um, out and lead them away from Hades. No, 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 no. The, the passage entails that there was four different Greek words for the word preached. He preached a message. It is a message of heralding, of saying, from the beginning, God kept trying to tell you that I was going to come and that I was going to bring something and accomplish something. Here I am to herald the fact that it has been done. And for all of eternity, you will understand and realize that you missed out. And so Jesus is preaching this message. So I don't believe that this to be congruent with the rest of Scripture, that on this day this man was going to be with Jesus in paradise, because Jesus himself wasn't even in paradise for three more days. Rather, when you change the the, the comma to the end of today, it says this, Truly, I say to you today, in this moment right now, you will be with me in paradise. Not saying that he will be with him in paradise on that day, but that he's telling them today that he will be with them in paradise one day. When Jesus has accomplished all and, and everything has been opened up once he conquered death, this man would be with him in paradise. Now we get into the death of Jesus and again, don't just... Listen to this and not let it have its weight. It was now about the sixth hour, which is about noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which was about 3 a.m. So from 12 to 3, it was the hour of darkness. Well, the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. 
the depiction that's here is that Jesus gives up his spirit. You see that this um, uh, probably an earthquake of some sort, some magnitude took place and it shook the temple and the veil was torn. And there's a lot of symbolism that's there. I'm not going to go into, but just know there's a lot of symbolism with that. Of that which was once veiled has now been unveiled. And Jesus gives up his spirit and the centurion is witnessing all this. And he sees all this stuff taking place. And when Jesus gives up his spirit, the centurion says, truly, this man was innocent. And the people watched it and they saw it. And there's this phrase that's there saying that they returned home beating their breast. If you go back into Luke chapter 18, verse 13, it brings this connotation along with it of the man who couldn't even look up to heaven. He was so ashamed of what he had just done. He's so ashamed of his life, so ashamed that he was unworthy to even look up to heaven. It says that he beat his breast before God. So was this a sign of which somebody had their chest puffed out in pride? Or was this a sign of remorse that they had just witnessed what they had taken part in? I don't know. What we do know is that there was this, something happened in this moment that caused even a centurion who was in charge of the crucifixion to repent. That a thief on the cross, a criminal I should say, repented. And that seemingly the people who watched this were filled with such remorse that they were beating their breasts as they returned home. And you and I would put a cross on the back of our car, on our luxury SUVs or our luxury cars. We hang crosses up in our house, but we forget its true meaning and what it took for you and I to find salvation. For the Son of God, for Him to watch His own Son be beaten and suspended on a cross in an act of shame so that we could have access to come to the Father through Him. In verse 50, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. I don't believe Joseph was a follower of Christ at this point. Maybe to a farther degree than Pilate. He took a stand for Christ. He didn't consent to the crucifixion. But he had yet to acknowledge himself as a follower of Christ. Because if he had, according to John 12, 42-43, he would have been kicked out of the council. Because if anybody was, was known to have followed Christ... That he was to be kicked out. Not just of the council. But of the city. So I don't believe that Joseph Arimathea was a follower. But I believe he was becoming one. I believe through some of these things. That he was becoming a follower. But to this point. He, loved the, he had more of the fear of man. The glory that comes from man. More than the glory that comes from God. It says that he was looking for the kingdom of God, meaning he had yet to find it. Which means that he had yet to find that Jesus is the source of the kingdom of God. It says this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb. Cut in stone where no one had ever been laid, which goes into prophecy in Isaiah 53, 9. It says that as Joseph Arimathea was a rich man, um, it says that the son of man would be laid in a rich man's tomb. 
And there's other things in there going into cut and stone. You know, I could build a whole podcast over this concept of going into even Ezekiel where it talks about where it says that he'll take our heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. He'll take that which was um, hard and, and no animate life to it and he would bring life in it. And he was laid in this tomb cut in stone. And it was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. And what we're going to find out is that obviously three days later we know that he resurrected. But I want this to sink in of the cross and the death of Christ. Read other accounts of it in Matthew and Mark and, and, and John where it talks about these concepts that go into it. And I just pray that God would give you a fresh weight so that you can feel the weight of the cross. Feel the weight of what it cost God to bring about our salvation. Of what it cost Christ to be the source of our salvation. So that we can go out there and understand what salvation truly is and live it to other people. But in the same sense of feeling the weight of the cross, the death of Christ, and what it cost God, what it cost Christ. Feeling that weight allows us to also feel a resurgence of the hope through the resurrection. And that's what we're going to be talking about in my next podcast. Y'all be blessed.